Hello, and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Is building a neurodiverse workforce one way to reduce the cyber skills gap? Organizations that employ neurodivergent people say that they make good and sometimes the best cybersecurity specialists. But neurodivergent people face challenges entering the workforce. Often, very bright and talented people face long-term unemployment, not least because recruitment processes are too often stacked against them. In this episode, we hear from two business leaders who are trying to change this. Rob Domain is CEO and founder at E2E Assure, and Emma Philpott is CEO at IASME. To start, I asked them both how large the skills gap actually is. There is definitely a skills gap, um, and more and more organizations are having to take cybersecurity seriously, and so they need people who understand it. But I personally don't think the skills gap is as big as people talk about, because the gap is in experienced cybersecurity people. So there's lots and lots of people with great skills and qualifications in cybersecurity that struggle to get work because there's a lack of entry-level jobs in cybersecurity. I don't know how you what you think about that, Rob. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, I mean, we just recruit well, with the process of recruiting. I think it's a dozen a dozen roles. We're not actually having any shortage of applicants. I know that tells me that there is a, uh, a sort of a supply problem, or it's not the right quality. But what we found is that it's much easier to recruit for um, lower skilled roles. Um, if you're willing to recruit for lower skilled roles and train people up. So I think when I look at it, I see that organizations want to get good at cyber and they want good people, but are probably not prepared to pay the kind of rates that the higher end people want. Therefore, they advertise low, uh, you know, low grade roles with quite demanding qualifications and experience levels. So I think there's a, definitely a mismatch in the way people approach recruiting in cyber. And they kind of expect yes. a bit too much maybe uh, and it's a bit sort of short term. I said, I want the resource now. I'm not prepared to invest in the people to train them and, and, and bring them through the through programs to get them to where they need to be. I think there's also a problem that larger organizations that can afford it tend to poach off the smaller organizations that can't afford the salaries. And so certainly we've seen with some of our certification bodies, the smaller ones, they don't want to yeah, they don't want their employees to get some of the certifications. So, for example, pen testing certifications. They say, you know, I can't allow my company, my employees to get that certification, even though they have the skills, because as soon as they have that certification, they'll be offered twice the salary by one of the big players. And I think that's a problem um, that it's, you know, rather than investing in new people, people who can, aff- organizations that can afford it, just can poach off smaller ones. When you talk about lower lower skilled roles, are you talking about entry level roles or are you talking about support and administrative roles that don't particularly need degree or post degree level qualifications, for example? So we would define entry level roles as needing very little in terms of qualifications or experience. So what we found is that if you take a longer term view at recruiting, then you need uh, your more senior roles to, to mentor and tutor juniors. So we would look for um, very few current skills or qualifications or experience for a junior role and expect to progress them quite quickly through internal and external training programs, which we will provide. So that's how we would define it. Uh, but a junior role in, in, the, in our SOC, for example, would be one that's 
um, you know, it has to be mentored and looked after and is going through a program, wouldn't be left to uh, sit on a shift themselves on their own, if, if, if you follow. You're looking at roles where people are going to train up to a level of skill rather than it's simply supporting tools or supporting... Yeah, entry-level roles, it's definitely that, yeah. Roles. We've yeah. got to train them up and we're just looking for the aptitude and the attitude um, and the right, right fit and then we, we train them up. So this is not a new... So this is not a new problem. I mean, it does actually sound as if the problem that we're dealing with today may be one that originates a few years ago when there was under-recruitment and therefore we've not either had enough people coming into the industry to progress and develop, uh, or indeed we haven't done a terribly good job about keeping those who have joined. Is that your perspective as well? Or are you seeing something slightly different? So I think it's just, it's the growth, it's the rate of growth of the sector. So even, oh, I don't know, seven years ago, when I used to run uh, the Malvern Cybersecurity Cluster, almost all the small cybersecurity companies worked for defense organizations or security organizations and then gradually banks, but but most other organizations didn't really do much in cybersecurity. Whereas now, of course, lots of organizations have to do cybersecurity. And so just the demand has increased so much. I think it's, so it is a skill shortage, but it's, it's a sort of a complex picture, isn't it? That there are people training up and coming in, but getting enough experienced people is, is quite a challenge. Um, but I think it is a reflection of the growth of the sector. Well, the industry is expanding at a faster rate than we can bring new people into it. Yes, I think so. Yeah, I agree. And I think that sort of recruitment needs to change a little bit in terms of organisations looking to looking at who they're trying to recruit um, and, and having realistic expectations around experience and qualifications. As you, as you mentioned, with accountancy or law, there's certain things, qualifications, which you can uh, expect to have. But in cyber, there's so many different ones. Uh, there's huge amounts of certifications and training that people can have in different types of roles within cyber. But often, I think organizations try and get the magical all-in-one cyber person that's going to fix the cyber problem. I don't think that's very realistic. No, that type of person doesn't exist. And we've seen this with recruitment advertising and positions that are vacant where there's a sort of laundry list of qualifications and they're, they're acquiring somebody who can take on every single task within the cybersecurity realm, which realistically, even if someone had been trained in all those aspects... They might not be very good at any one of them. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So how then does widening the talent pool fit into this? And particularly, we want to talk today about neurodiversity. And I know you've both been doing some work around that. But what proportion of people in InfoSec at the moment would you say are uh, from a neurodiverse background? And what actually do we mean by the term neurodiversity before we go into what type of roles they could play and whether that is an untapped or insufficiently tapped resource? So neurodiversity is actually a diversity of the way of thinking. So everyone is in is included in that. Neurodivergent is the definition that we now use, which are which includes people who think differently to most other people. <laughs> it gets very, very confusing. So we would include people who are autistic, people with ADHD, people who are dyslexic, just all the kind of isms that make somebody think in a slightly different way to the mainstream thinking. A lot of the cybersecurity sector are neurodivergent already. We have quite a few people who don't know that they're neurodivergent. People that we particularly focus on are not people who are neurodivergent and fine in their job. You know, there's lots of neurodivergent people working in cybersecurity, no problems at all. It doesn't matter if they have a badge of being neurodivergent or not. The people that we tend to to focus on are those where their neurodivergence 
creates a barrier that they cannot have a happy, fulfilling career. And that's really the, the people that we focus on. And many of them are incredibly talented and clever, but their, their neurodivergence means that there's some other aspect of the working environment, which is too much of a barrier for them. By looking at them as an individual and providing the support and adjustments, they can have a really good career in cybersecurity and they can be you know, really brilliant and worth a lot to the company by just overcoming the barriers that are involved with just being in a workplace usually. So that's important for the company because you get talent. It's also important for the company because having a diverse way of thinking means that you're innovative, you can do things that you wouldn't otherwise do, makes you a much, much better company. But also, of course, it's really important for the individual because for somebody who is very capable and not able to have a job, they have low self-esteem, they get depression. Certainly some of the people that we've seen that we've trained up that have been long-term unemployed and now actually work for Rob, <laughs> um, you wouldn't recognize them. They have a completely different way of just being because they have pride in themselves They're, and they rightly should be proud of themselves. They have a great career in cybersecurity from being sometimes long-term unemployed. And so it's good for the individuals and their families as well. When we talk then about someone being neurodivergent and the skills that they offer, are we saying there are specific attributes that people can bring to the table that you know are useful in information security? Or are we simply saying that this is an untapped group of people who are not being employed to the full of their abilities are just the same as there are in other sectors of society as well. And we want to bring all those people into the industry, or at least get them to, to think about applying to the industry. No, there are specific skills that some neurodivergent people have. So for example, autistic people have an ability to super focus, recognize patterns. And this isn't all autistic people, but autistic people often have these characteristics of their skills. They can see inconsistencies where most people couldn't. They focus the whole time in a very super focused way, uh, which actually can be very bad for them. So you have to tell them to switch off at a certain time, otherwise they go into burnout. In particularly in some roles, autistic people are, are the best, you know, better than people who are not autistic. So we started recruiting uh, sort of eight individuals initially back in 2019, I believe they were unemployed. Uh, but had done some cybersecurity training, which Emma had organized and, and uh, various bits of industry had contributed to. So they definitely had cyber skills or cyber potential um, already. Uh, and then when um, when we, we all met them and, and had conversations, I just realized it was an untapped talent pool um, and thought, well, this is there's a huge amount of you know, potential talent here who understands cyber. And then potentially the thinking patterns that Emma's describing are very useful for security operations center work, which is what we do as a business. So those three things combined into thinking, well, hang on a minute, um, you know, this seems like a, seems like a really good talent pool to me. Uh, and that was my objective was to see if we could uh, strengthen our, our skills. Um, what we found um, other than, you know, it's taken sort of several years to progress people through normal sort of career paths, I guess, in, in this space. Um, and what we found in doing that is that um, there's huge amounts of loyalty, I guess, in this space as well. You know, the employees that we've had have been very loyal, but they've been very dedicated to the tasks that we've provided. So we've had to change a lot of things, review a lot of processes and do a whole lot of things uh, that are actually of a wider benefit to our business. Um, and I think there's definitely certain roles and tasks that suit 
certain new, new diverse mindsets better than others, but it's a broad thing we're talking about. And that's what we've found is it's difficult to put things in a, in a box in this area. Uh, there's a whole load of skills actually that benefit our business. Uh, and, uh, you know, naming just one um, in there. And what adjustments have you made actually to, to help people? And my understanding is that you haven't just been looking at workplace skills, but you've been looking at it more in the round. So supporting, for example, a transition towards more independent living. So the sport we did originally, so when we started the scheme, we realized that potential barrier to recruiting people was that they were currently unemployed um, and didn't really have any cyber experience and may have done a bit of training, but were not the typical um, typical person we'd recruit, <laughs> if I'm honest. Uh, so trying to understand how we then adapt to some of the reasons why they were currently unemployed, which may have been uh, as a result of, of a neurodiversity or something like that. But it's a big unknown, and we weren't experts at all. We didn't really understand it, but we understood these were great people with great potential. So we actually created a, a sister company and employed them through that and created a different office for them, which was in the same uh, location as where they were based, through, through, through Ember and IASME. And then we had lots of support from lots of organizations who are specialists in this space and IASME themselves to make sure that the tutors and, and that the people looking after them were still all in place. And then we brought them up through part-time work and gradually increased hours and gradually increased uh, the amount of training we were providing, uh, amount of interaction and stuff they did with the wider teams. So the learning lesson at the end of it, I can give you lots of examples of little things that we did. I mean, we found all sorts of issues with noisy offices, meeting spaces and, and noise and, and lack of focus time. I mean, there's, there's so many, but fundamentally, rather than try and keep this as a separate entity, we, we changed all that and decided that we're better off adapting our whole recruitment and our whole business focus more broadly then trying to put things in sort of more contained boxes. So we, as IASME, recruited a lot of people from the training course. And to start with, we had a separate team where they went and we had a welfare manager to support them. And exactly as, as Rob was describing, we realized that just because they have been on that course and they get labeled neurodivergent doesn't actually make them that different to everyone else. Um, and especially when we went through COVID, uh, lots of our staff, you know, they had awful times. They had people close to them dying. They had, you know, loneliness and they all needed reasonable adjustments as well in exactly the same way as people who have neurodivergencies or disabilities or, or any of that. And so we realized that everyone is, is a unique, complicated individual. And, and, you know, rather than having a separate team for people who are neurodivergent, it's just, everything is all included in one now and everyone gets the support. And often, a support that is needed for one individual, if you actually give that offer that to everyone, it turns out that everyone is pleased with it, which is, you know, but they just hadn't realized it. So for example, we've had problems with strip lighting in our office. Um, and, you know, and I was like, oh, really? So we put, gave everyone a desk lamp instead. And all the people, they've said, wow, I have less headaches. You know, it's so much better. I much prefer this. So it's it's really interesting that you think you're putting an adjustment in for one group of people, but it turns out actually to be good for everybody. And that's that's what we found throughout the whole of, you know, our experience of employing people who are neurodivergent. And also kind of connected to that, we talk about it a lot in our organization about how people are neurodivergent and you know, their skills because they think differently and how we like that and how we like diversity. And we we have to talk about it because being a very diverse company, often people don't get on with each other. <laughs> you know, it's not that they don't get on with each other. They they It takes effort 
to work together because people see things from such a different point of view. But the as long as we address that and we talk about it a lot in our organization, you end up with a very innovative, inclusive organization. And we found that people want to work for our organization and want to stay working for us because of that inclusivity. And so by actively trying to include and, and employ neurodivergent people, it means that non-neurodivergent people also want to be part of that sort of environment. So that, that's, that was a, an aspect that we didn't expect, but is actually quite a strong thing within our organization now. What have you done, though, about the hiring process? Because one of the things that comes up, talking to people from different backgrounds, is often they find the conventional rounds of selection interviews and other processes quite difficult. And that can put people off from applying at all, or it can mean that people don't give the best impression of their abilities because the way that they're expected to behave, or even the things they're being measured on, are not necessarily the uh, the skills that come naturally to them. Or they may not be very good at communicating, picking up those non-verbal cues in an interview, for example. If you sort of sit a panel and uh, you know sit there at a desk with a panel and try and bring in people, it generally doesn't get the best out of them. Um, so I think particularly through the scheme that we worked with them, it was all about getting the support from from, from uh, around them and then making sure they knew exactly what uh, to expect. Uh, clear clear, and concise and timelines were clear. Um, and then not um, and giving the opportunity to see the, see the best bits in, in the conversation. So starting things off as a conversation um, and trying to get, you know, trying to have a different, more relaxed approach to an interview um, is what, what we found and we found that a lot of our interviews my whole interview process has changed significantly over the last few years as a result of a result of this because initially the interview was the biggest barrier to recruitment for for these people that was it they, they couldn't interview it was a huge barrier <laughs> and sometimes it wouldn't happen because they, they couldn't they couldn't attend or it was too daunting um so i think it's important that that is understood that generally your normal recruitment process might not might not work. Uh, I don't know if you've had the same experience, Emma. Yes, I mean, I've always found interviews really difficult to judge someone. Um, our training courses that we run, they they go on for five weeks. We really get to know the individuals, and <laughs> that's kind of morphed into part of our recruitment process, certainly on the technical side, because we get to know them, we get to know their skills, and with many of them, we think, wow, they're so you know, they might find it difficult to come across in a certain way to start with. But as we get to know them, we think, wow, they'll be, they would be so good in our organization. So we do that. And for people who don't come through that, what we try and do is we offer them like three days work experience. So, so they get to come in and do some stuff with us and relax. And we can, we get a much better picture of, you know, what they're like, what their skills are like. So we can, we can recruit them like that. But it is, you know, recruiting people is a bit of a difficult thing. Um, and again, it's trying to make sure that they don't get so anxious. Uh, a lot of neurodivergent people, especially those that have faced barriers in the past, have got really bad experiences at school, at university, at previous job interviews, where they've just been rejected and rejected and rejected and, you know, told that they're not no good. And so that's what you're up against as well when you're trying to recruit people from this background. From the perspective of the organisations that you both work for, what have been the results of doing this? So in tangible business terms, what have you got out of it? Well, I mean, for us, we 
I would say that our whole success is down to our diversity because we are a fast moving, innovative organization. And, you know, oftentimes there'll be a problem, you know, a business problem or a technical problem. And we'll talk about it within the team. And because of the different ways of thinking, people will come up with ideas that, you know, I would never have thought of. A lot of people would never have thought of. And it's, you know, if everyone was thinking in one way, that would just never happen. And our success, um, you know, the dedication of our employees and our team and the innovation of thinking really has has made IASME what it is. And so I put the whole of our success down to the fact that we've got such a, a loyal and diverse team. And Rob, I know we've spoken offline about this before, but your point is that this is not a corporate social responsibility type of initiative or a charitable thing that you're doing. It's actually there for a business reason. Could you expand on that a little bit? Sure. So um, going back to the skills they have and finding junior, you know, junior, sorry, entry level positions with potential, this, this was really important that we took a long term view to building up uh, a cyber team. I mean, you know, over years. So we decided to invest in the long term in our in our team of people, and people is our is our biggest asset in the business. Um, and if you think if you have long term thinking, then this scheme works. So we initially took eight uh, people from the initial scheme in 2019 who, who were unemployed, or, or um, and we've only lost one of those uh, in that time. Um, and several have, have progressed to quite critical, even customer facing roles, which we never expected. But moreover, other people have joined the business in various levels of position who have come to us directly and known about this and joined us. So we've had a lot of recruits, um, you know, with no recruitment fee, <laughs> who are excellent at cybersecurity, who are incredibly loyal, who are very fast learning, who are very good at the job and can progress uh, within an organization who can be trained and that current round of people uh, were recruiting another round and these will be, you know, mentors for that round so in doing so i would say we could we could get a huge amount of our workforce through this scheme and when you know we're faced with you know constant need to recruit um finding ways to recruit which are effective is a massive business problem to solve uh, and this really helps us solve it so running this scheme has had the secondary benefit of bringing other people in who are not part of the scheme who may otherwise not have considered applying to yourselves or may not have considered infrasecurity at all absolutely people have they joined us because they've heard about this mm, or been working elsewhere and said you know they don't get it but you guys get it um and these 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 are turned out to be very loyal very good employees uh, and we you, you worry about oh you know are there going to be more sickness days or something and we've not we've not got any any evidence of that at all um so yeah it's been a big success and also as we progress we've got some quite deep technical roles that have clear tasks that need tenacity uh, and people who don't give up on things um, and that particular skill set, the high-end threat hunting aspect of our job, this is seems to be quite a lot of percentage of people who have joined from that area, particularly good at those areas. Um, so, you know, we're only just beginning to exploit the advantages. Uh, and as Emma said, it's not just in terms of, you know, recruitment, the rest of the business is better. Um, the team's more effective. We deal with problems better. Um, we also, as you say, innovate and, and think of solutions better. And when it's cybersecurity, sometimes having an ability to think 
differently around problems um, and not always think the same way about it is what you need to spot the the little uh, the, the the one-off thing or the anomaly uh, that we might otherwise not have occurred to us. Is there anything that you've learned, either of you, from going through this process? Is there anything that you would do differently, perhaps, if you were starting again? Yeah, I wouldn't have created the sort of separate separate entity and, and thought, you know, I thought it was you know, a risky thing to do and was worried that it would impact the rest of the business in some way. So we were very kind of slow to adopt and, and bring them into the mainstream business, you know, put them in front of customers, put them in any way that, that could impact. So I think... Uh, what we've adapted since then is much better mentoring approaches um, so we can bring people in quicker and, and, and a bit of trust them a bit more, a bit quicker. Uh, but also rather than seeing things as a separate scheme, readjusting the whole recruitment to take people from all sorts of backgrounds effectively um, and try and broaden the way we recruit in general to find people who are great at cyber. And I think you've, you're probably aware that there's a the retraining um, uh, academy is running at the moment with HMG and Sounds, and we've I think we're recruiting half a dozen from that at the moment, which is people who have recruited people who are sort of retraining into cyber, um, so that they can be well, all sorts of backgrounds. <laughs> uh, and we we've we're going to do a big recruitment round from there as well because if, if you commit to long term and, and have the people in the business that can train and mentor then this is how you build a good, strong cyber team who are loyal and um, and stick with you. I wouldn't have created a separate team for, for the neurodivergent people. And I wouldn't have assumed that just because they were neurodivergent, they all had the same skills and, you know, and they would all work best together. So I would, yeah, I wouldn't have done that. It's very easy looking back to think, why on earth did I think that was a good idea? Um, but yeah, I, just doing more of it, actually. So like Rob, we, when we started out, we were a bit like, oh, you know, is this going to work? But it's it's been so good um, that, yeah, just doing more of it and not seeing it as a separate entity. And I was going to ask, actually, so I will. Uh, the last point I wanted to cover is how would you scale this up? Can this be scaled up? Is this something that could be used more broadly within the industry to go back to where we started from, fill some of those skills gaps? The problem that we come across is that there are a lot of organizations that say that they want to hire neurodivergent people. When it comes to it, they want the neurodivergent people who don't need adjustments or, you know, very, very easy adjustments. And I think particularly with the bigger organizations, unless you absolutely believe that this is business critical, it's going to be potentially very difficult to, you know, see people as an individual and make the kind of adjustments that they need. And so if organizations really can see the benefit and truly see this as a as a important business change, then I think it's it would be relatively easy to scale up. We train up just in Worcester. Um, we'd love to do it across the whole country. Um, but it's it's finding employers that are going to learn and do this properly like Rob has. I mean, Rob has been an absolute perfect employer, <laughs> um, really embraced this and has you know, taken lessons on board and changed his whole processes in some cases. You need, you need businesses that are willing to do that. So yeah, hopefully in the future they will be. But not everyone necessarily can make that commitment. So Rob, you said it was a long-term commitment. Why did you want to make that commitment? There's a part of it is an understanding when I found the business that 
you know, as a diverse set of people, you do a better job and better business. And I believed always that the, the most diverse businesses were the best. Um, I just had that that thing, that feeling initially. And I guess when when I've been looking at how we train and retain staff in general, you can have the approach that if you train them, they're going to leave, or you can sort of train them so they're going to stay. I think it's a Branson quote in there somewhere. And I very much had that approach that, you know, if you treat people right, if you make opportunity and if you train them, they generally become loyal. Um, and if you don't um, train them and don't do all those things, that's when you're going to lose people. So that's what I had in mind. And I re- recognized, and I still do, that as an organization in cybersecurity, it's your people that count. You know, we've got technology, we've got all these things, but actually it's about the quality of your people in your business. That's what matters. So. You need that to be a long-term strategy. If you're constantly churning staff, you can't be a good, successful business. Not very easily anyway. Rob Domain and Emma Philpott with their lessons from building a recruitment programme for neurodivergent talent in cyber and how they feel the idea could scale. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. We'll be back in two weeks' time when we'll be looking at some of the security issues around 5G, That will be live on Wednesday, the 16th of November. Until then, you can, of course, catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and, of course, on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.